one day I told myself, I don't need sugar. I don't need desserts. So when I say this, it's not like that sometimes I eat cookies or sometimes I eat cake. No. When I'm in Denver, I don't need it. So now it becomes what I call a half binary decision. It means it's not a yes or no, it's just no. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Financial Independence Show, where today we have on Vitaly Katznelson, author of Soul in the Game. But before we do that, let me check in my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Well, Cody, we got a big string of events going on. Just went to Mississippi for a few days, and then from there came down to hang out with you guys at FinCon. So we did FinCon for a few days, getting to hang out with tons of people that we've had on the show, which is awesome, getting to see those people, reconnect with them. And then from there, again, kept the train rolling with you, Cody. Went to Universal Studios, rode all the rides, and think I found my new favorite in the Velocicoaster. So other than the stuff maybe I know about, or what else you got to add, Cody? What'd you do this weekend? Seriously been an awesome week. We, like you said, hit FinCon. And now, like you mentioned, we're at Universal Studios. We've been hitting all the major rides. Velocicoaster is, like you said, probably the most exciting roller coaster I've ever been on. It's me, you, Lauren, and James and Emily, previous guests on episode 36 here. And we've just been tearing up the park. If you guys have not come to Universal, there's a lot of cool new rides. We've been hitting Hagrid's Ride is a favorite of mine. Velocicoaster, like Justin mentioned. And the Hollywood Rip Ride Rocket are some of my favorites. But that's enough about our exciting week, Justin. Let's get into today's guest, Vitaly. So as you'll hear in today's episode, Vitaly's story actually starts over in the Soviet Union. And he comes over with kind of a scarcity mindset. Things that are commonplace to Justin and I, like Coca-Cola, are novelties in his country. So he kind of comes over at a young age with that mindset. We talk through his personal journey, how he started to get like really analytical into stocks and other investments. And then how he's kind of pivoted to getting the most out of life. We talk about his new book, Soul in the Game, and a whole bunch of other small but tactical things that you can implement into your life to just live a more intentional and happy life. And to just highlight one of the things you mentioned, Cody, like taking out that decision fatigue, that was probably the biggest takeaway I had from this discussion was what Vitaly calls half binary decisions, basically having rules set up to where you always know you're going to say no or yes to a certain thing. So that way you don't have to think about it because every time you make a decision, that just draws down a little bit of your energy and takes away from the rest of the things you got to decide on in life. He also talks about emotional intelligence and how important that is as investors to take emotion out of your plans. So whether it's finding the link to Vitaly's new book or you want to share someone who you think would be interested in kind of building a more meaningful life, you can do all that over at thefyshow.com slash Vitaly. That's thefyshow.com slash V-I-T-A-L-I-Y. Take it away, Vitaly. I was born in Murmansk, Russia. So if you look at the map of Russia and you look to the left and you go to the very, very, very top, like above the Arctic Circle. So like it's kind of on the northern side of Norway. And so it's incredibly cold throughout the year for a few months during the winter time. There is no sunlight, very little sunlight. Imagine this. I go to school in the morning and it's dark. Sometime during the day, the sun would come out for 20 minutes. I would be in the classroom. So I miss the sunlight and I'm going back in the darkness again. And this was my kind of my life basically throughout winter. Growing up in Russia, and not just Russia, but Soviet Russia, I learned to appreciate capitalism. I did not know it at the time. And here's my analogy. When I moved from Murmansk, I moved to Denver. And Denver has 320, 30, 50 days of sunshine a year. Okay. 
So imagine the contrast going from this no sunlight to a lot of sunlight. So the contrast between the two is huge. So is kind of capitalism, because when you grow up in a society where the government owns all basically means of production. I'll give an example. I did not know a single person who owned their own business. Every single person around you worked for the government, even the barbershop, government owned. And so when you go get a haircut, you get a horrible service. You know why? Because nobody cares. Because they don't own it, right? And you move to the United States and you see this contrast between what this country has to offer versus where you came from. And I think that is an incredibly motivating. Like, so being an immigrant, I would argue, actually, is a huge advantage because you can see what this country has to offer where you came from. And this contrast it's kind of lights the fuel you know, under you. And you know, that's what you know, basically motivated me to achieve what I have achieved in this country. And when you came over to Denver, I know we've talked to a certain amount of people who have immigrated to the U.S. and under different circumstances. Some people come with a, a more of like a scarcity mindset. Did you find yourself like that was kind of the situation when your family moved over? I know like myself, like I grew up fairly poor, even though I'm from the U.S., but so like I definitely have a part of that in my financial journey. Just kind of curious what that was like when you moved over. It was this cultural shock. You go to the store and there was this abundance of food. Okay. And I remember, this is a true story. I think I had Pepsi once throughout my 18 years of, you know, and I remember how much I loved it. It was such a special feeling. And I come to the United States and you can buy Coke or Pepsi by gallons. And I tell you this, this is true, absolutely true. In the first two years of my life in the United States, I made up for the lack of my consumption <laughs> of Coke and Pepsi for the previous 18. We got to the point where I was 20, 21 years old. I'm at the, at the village inn and I'm ordering my third refill of Coke. And I realized I can't taste the sweetness anymore because now it tastes like water. And this is where I told myself, you know what? I consume all this sugar. I'm not even enjoying it. So I basically said, I'm going to drink it just on special occasions, like when I go to movies. And since then, this is like, you know, this is almost 30 years ago, 20 something years ago, I've been basically drinking Coke a few times a year. And I tell you this, there is some value in scarcity. Because every time I drink Coke today, I enjoy it so much more. There is so many benefits of scarcity, which we usually don't appreciate. First of all, it makes us to enjoy things more. From a business perspective, when something is scarce, it makes you work harder to, I'm switching topics a little bit, but I read about Segway. And this company has been a flop from a commercial perspective. In a sense, you still see Segways, but it's not like everybody around you has a Segway. Right. And I read a business case why it hasn't succeeded. Because the company, when it came out, the technology looked so revolutionary. It got so much money thrown at that that the company did not really have this drive to figure out this you know, product market fit, how to make this product that actually consumers want. And a lot of people get turned off by Segway because when you write a Segway, you look lazy. It's for psychological reasons. You look like you are kind of standing there and it does it for you. And that's one of the reasons why the product never succeeded. If they were hungry, if they had to figure out how do we make this product that actually fit with psychological mindset of consumers, yeah, if they had less money, it would have been a lot more successful. So to kind of get back to your story, when you move over here, you move to Denver, you're 18 years old. I just want to kind of get back to building out like how you know today's Vitaly was formed. What do you think life is going to look like 
after, you know, the first few years in the U.S.? Like, did you already have a game plan mapped out as an 18-year-old? Like, I'm going to do this, this, and this? Not at all. I was just happy to get out of <laughs> Russia. I just got here, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just was a complete cultural shock. I went to college in Russia, come to the United States, and realized if I go to college, I would have to pay out-of-state tuition, which is two or three times more. So I actually went to high school to study English. I actually ended up graduating from high school here. I dated like six or seven different majors in college before I figured out I wanted to finance. But once I realized I wanted to do finance and investing, it was love first sight. And when something is so clear to you, that's what you want to do, for me, it created this incredible focus because at this point, I said, that's what I'm going to do. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I need to get an undergraduate degree in finance, graduate degree in finance, CFA, and I got all three. And in fact, I got my graduate degree in CFA at the same time. So I don't think I had this clarity until I was in this country for a few years. The first couple of years, I was just confused about the culture and the language and et cetera. And I was confused that people, like in Russia, people did not smile at you. Like people smiled at you because when you made them laugh. You never walked in the street and somebody smiled at you. The smile actually carried data. Somebody smiled at you, it communicated something. Here, I remember like I was getting fired from the first job. And the guy was smiling at me, so I couldn't really reconcile how could I be fired by a guy who is smiling at me. Like, like you, you take those things for granted, but you know, that was a cultural shock for me. I know you said it was like love at first sight when you said, it, hey, finance is the way I want to go. But did you have any kind of exposure to finance or like the industry around it? Or like, how did you even end up considering finance as an option? In Russia, I had zero exposure to that. Here was actually, I got a job. I self-taught myself computers, which at the time was not that difficult because all I had to do is kind of learn how to install Windows, this kind of stuff. I got a job at the investment firm for my computer skills to help them to manage all the computers and stuff, install software, et cetera. And while I was there, they had a Bloomberg terminal and I was playing with Bloomberg. They had a lot of people, like analysts, portfolio managers, ended up talking to me. That piqued my interest. And then at the university, I was taking different classes. I remember taking a business class because I was thinking I'm going to become a manager. And I took a business management class and I realized how much I hate this. And I remember coming up to my teacher and saying, thank you so much. Now I, don't, I know I don't want to become a manager. And the guy was shocked because he thought I was insulting him and I was thanking him because he did a very good job explaining what the profession looks like and I realized I don't want to do this. And then I took finance class and it just was interesting to me. I remember I came home and I was talking to my father for 20 minutes what I learned in class. No other class evoked this kind of reaction for me. So let's kind of fast forward through the next couple of decades, I guess. So you started this firm, was it 97, I believe I read? I joined the firm. I didn't start it. The firm was already around. I joined as an analyst. Okay, so you joined as an analyst. And then I think it was like 15 years later, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you were CEO at that point. That's quite a jump in 15 years. No, so I joined the firm as an analyst. At the time, the firm is very small. A gentleman who later became a partner, Mike, he basically taught me everything I know today about you know, investing. And over time, I became portfolio manager, became chief investment officer. I wrote a couple of investment books. And as Mike kind of transitioned towards retirement, I took over the CEO. And I'll tell you this, Warren Buffett says that being a businessman made him a better investor. And being an investor made a better businessman. I would argue the same thing. Learning how to manage a company is a skill that they don't really teach you in graduate school. 
And that was so beneficial to me because it taught me one of the most important lessons is the value of people. It sounds very banal, sounds very trite, but my firm is really just a culture plus people. It's our culture, our processes, and people. That's all it is. And the value of people today, when I analyze companies, in fact, when I invest into companies, I spend as much time thinking about the people who run those companies as the company's competitive advantage, return on capital, valuation, and other things. Since I became a CEO, the size of the company went up like eightfold. And so when you're saying like you're looking at companies trying to figure out if it's a company like you believe in, you're saying you are not only do you look at earnings reports and all the projections and, and the numbers behind it, but you're actually going out there and looking at who's on their board, who their CEO is, like who are the people at the helm and researching if you believe in them. Oh, absolutely. And then, you know, and then we listen to interviews with that CEO, we listen to what they have to say on earnings calls and how they talk about the company. Are they talking about next three months or are they talking about next three years? People who are only talking about next three months and how they're going to beat earnings next three months, those people, have, we have very little interest in them because we want people to build modes around the business, not just meet and beat next year's earnings. And I, would argue, you know, I would argue that Jack Welch went into history books as this tremendous CEO, champion of corporate America. And I would argue he did more harm than good for corporate America because he instilled the culture that you know, the company has to beat next quarter's earnings, which basically makes your focus very short-term. If you think about Jeff Bezos versus Jack Welch, Jeff Bezos doesn't care about next quarter's earnings because a lot of times to build a good company, you need to make investments. When you make investments, that you create an extra expense, which actually reduces your earnings next quarter. Okay, But by doing this, you're coming up with Alexa and you're coming up with other products that's going to pay off years down the road. When you see what happened to General Electric over the last 20 years, that's basically the company where R&D and the culture was squeezed for the benefit of earnings. The company collapsed. And I know you talk a lot about value investing. I mean, your last two books previous to the one we're going to talk about today, Soul in the Game, one was almost exclusively about value investing. The other one was about you know making yeah. money in sideways markets. Can we just talk about value investing and kind of just how you think of it like at a 30-foot level, like just the value investing framework when you're looking at companies? Sure. So value investing in general, the whole term is redundant. It should be just <laughs> investing. It's an incredibly commonsensical framework. When I analyze companies, I'm basically looking at the company as if it was a private company, even though we invest in public companies. But if I'm analyzing Apple or Amazon or whatever, I'm analyzing it as if I was buying the whole company and as if I was going to own it for a long, long time, as if stock market was closed for 10 years. Once you get into this mindset, suddenly you start looking at the company, suddenly the ability to flip the stock tomorrow and looking at and treat the stock market as a kind of as a casino, that goes away. And you kind of get in the shoes of an investor. And I have this, if your listeners want to learn about this, it's absolutely free. I have this chapter I put online. They go to sixcommandments.com. I kind of wrote the primer for value investing. This I call it the six commandments of value investing. And all it is basically, let me highlight a few. So commandment number one. You treat companies as businesses, as I just described, not as a piece of paper. Number two, you have a long-term time horizon. Let me tell you a secret. Nobody knows what the stock market will do or stocks will do in the next three to six months. 
Nobody does. You listen to CNBC and they, you have all these talking heads giving you advice and giving you an opinion on the market. They don't know. Nobody does. Just like you don't know what card is going to come next at the blackjack table. You really don't. The third is that Mr. Market is there to serve you, not the other way around. In other words, the market will have ups and downs. And if you know what the company is worth, and you know this because you've done the research, then when the company becomes too expensive, you sell it, becomes overvalued, and it becomes cheap, you buy it, right? And that's the mindset that the volatility, kind of the fluctuation of the stock prices, they're really just there to help you to make money. There are other ones, but value investing is basically a framework of how to be a rational investor. And I think a lot of times, I'm sure a lot of listeners would feel this way. When you hear the term value investing, a lot of times you think about these like tried and true companies that have been around for a long time, like a Coca-Cola or something. But mm -hmm. if that's where your mind goes, like what do you do in those situations where you're thinking about a newer company, a company that doesn't have as much of a track record because they haven't been publicly traded for that long? Like, mm -hmm. How do you look to continue to add new things to your portfolio and not just building on a certain subset of companies that have been around for a long time? We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash show, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash show to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash show. Now back to the show. So far, I discussed loads of time horizon, treating the company as a, as a business. Mr. Marcus, how to help you. The fourth one is going to be margin of safety. When you buy a company, I'm going to answer your question, but this is how I'm going to answer it. So when you buy a company, you want to buy it a discount, significant discount to what it's worth because the future may not turn out as bright as you hope it would be. And therefore, you need the margin of safety for this. Now, when you're looking at the company that doesn't have a track record, right, then the range of outcomes, again, I'm generalizing right now, is very wide. Right, so how would the value investor apply this framework? You basically want to buy a company at or below the worst outcome. One of the companies we own in the portfolio, and I'm bringing this up not to pitch the stock, and this is not what I'm doing. I just want to be make it clear. We own Uber. You would argue Uber is not your traditional Coca-Cola IBM. So in my thinking about Uber, this is a company that has competitive advantage. This is a company that will be around in ten to twenty years. And this is a company that may not have uh, much profitability today, but through my research, we think it's going to have a lot of profitability in the next three to five years. And based on that profitability, that's not apparent today, but we believe this company is cheap. Again, through our research. And if your listeners are interested, they can read my analysis on that. But that's not the point. The point is, value investment is a philosophy. 
Justin, you make a very good point because a lot of times people think about value investing and they think about just buy companies that look statistically cheap, right? It's like going to a museum. I was going to use the analogy because the Bible of value investing is Ben Graham's Intelligent Investor. A lot of times people read this book and that's all they get out of it, buy companies that trade at eight times earnings, okay? But my point is like, if they told to get out, they miss the philosophy. And the philosophy, what I described, right? It's like going to a museum, going to Louvre, and basically not skipping Mona Lisa and just going to the bathroom and learning that it has soft toilet paper, this kind of thing. If that's all people get out of reading The Intelligent Investor, because it's a very rich philosophy. And shifting focus to personal finance a bit, I know you had a chapter and we were talking quickly about it before we hit record here in your yeah. latest book, Soul in the Game. And it seems like, I think, you said something like it was the best wedding gift you got was lunch with your friend, Mark. So could you expand a bit on that for our audience? Yeah. I got married when I was 28. At that time, until that point in time, I lived with my parents, which is kind of a very Russian thing to do. You live with your parents, you get married, you move out of the house. Even though at that time I already had a job, et cetera, et cetera. But I knew nothing about personal finances. I did not even know how much things cost at the grocery store. Maybe six months before I got married, I went to London. And I brought my stepmom British tea. And I was so proud of it because I brought her the British tea. And this tells you about how little I knew about grocery stores. Because she said, yeah, that's the same tea I buy every time I go to grocery <laughs> store. Because I- <laughs> anyway, so I know nothing about personal finance. I know nothing about what things cost. And my friend Mark, who was 10 years older, he basically sets me down with my wife and says, guys, let me give you advice that can help you a lot when you get married. And he said, you have to do budget. Okay, in the budget, you list your income, your expenses. And at this point, I kind of was getting annoyed because at this point, I have a master's degree in finance and I have a CFA. My friend is explaining about income statement. I'm like, okay. But he said, listen, when you think about expenses, don't just think about expenses that appear to you like right away, which would be like cable bill, mortgage. You also have to think about expenses that will happen to you in the future. Okay, because you have to do this time shifting because there are going to be expenses that are going to happen to you in the future that you have to put on the budget. Like every so many years, you're going to buy a new car. Let's say it's going to cost you $5,000 every so many years. That means it's going to cost you a few hundred dollars a month. So that's an expense that's going to happen in the future that you have to save for. You have a $1,000 deductible on your car insurance. That is a potential future expense. So that's money that you want to put away as well. You start going through and then identifying expenses, kind of doing some time shifting expenses that, like even your retirement, that is a future expense. You don't want to just, when you are 60 something years old, realize, oh, I should have saved for the retirement. You should be start saving for your retirement when you're young. It's much easier to do that. And so what Mark basically said, when you create your budget, you have your income, your expenses that you can see right now, and then your what he would call sinking funds. And what's left, that's the money that you can spend on things that are less important. But here's the thing. What budget is, it forces you to mindfully think about your expenses. Because like in life, you do a lot of things mindlessly. One day you've been driving to work and you stop by Starbucks. And then the next thing you do the same thing. And then it became a habit. Okay? So if you really enjoy going to Starbucks, it should be ranked higher on your budget list. But if you just mindlessly been going to Starbucks because you've been going to Starbucks and you realize it's costing you $1,500 a year, 
maybe that should be in the very low end, you know, like very low on your budget. Okay. So what budget does allows you to mindfully examine your expenses, and then you can prioritize things that are more important to you and less important to you. And then for my family, going to Starbucks is less important than going on vacations because we find the experiences bring a lot more happiness. Okay. Therefore, they're much higher on that list. And I don't do this anymore, but for 15 years of our marriage, we actually saved money for vacations. So that was one of those sinking funds. So when we went on vacations, we didn't have to get in debt and put it on our credit card because that's the money that was saved for us. And that was a point Mark was trying to drive across. The issue is what happens to us a lot when those expenses that kind of happen on a semi-regular basis, but we, we miss come up, we have to get in debt. And when we get in debt, we start paying interest and, 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 and uh, interest and compounding interest becomes very, very expensive very, very fast. So those kind of the lessons I learned from that conversation. And that makes it sound like, at least from your story, that up until that point, you're understanding an idea of like personal finance, like actually what you would spend on a given month might have been like not fully fleshed out because you, like you said, you're still living with your parents. Maybe you weren't buying all the things. And so yeah. after having that conversation, you get married, that starts becoming your responsibility. I'm curious like how things change because a lot of people, when they get into personal finance or an idea of early retirement, they get almost like obsessed with it and they go almost too far and they start like watching every penny and they start maybe shrinking things too much. Just kind of curious like what your reaction was to pulling that veil back and seeing behind the curtain. So in the beginning, I used Quicken. And for Quicken, I actually had, I forget what it's called, but basically every category I was tracking, like my wife and I literally set budgets for every category for how much we spend on food, clothes, et cetera, different things. And we watched that we are not overspending for each category. And I think once I did download, we can download every day you know, for a long period of time. And when we get married, our income was a lot less and we had to be a lot more frugal, this kind of things. Over time, I modified this, kind of made it looser because I'm not as constrained as I used to be. And now I basically have very loose spending in four categories. Experiences, like vacation, et cetera, we have very loose budget. Time, I'm willing to pay to buy time. The simple example would be when somebody needs to mow your lawn, you can do this or you can hire somebody else. I have an assistant who does scheduling of all my calls, as an example, and so on. I'm willing to pay money to buy time. And today, I can afford to do that. And number three, health. I have a personal trainer that I work out with twice a week. And the last category is education. My kids basically don't have a budget on how much they spend on books, as an example. But this is important. I have these four categories. They're very meaningful to me. And when I spend money there, the money buys me the most because I get the most value out of them. Now, at the same time, for a long, long time, until recently, my wife was driving the same car for 12 years. I drove the same car for 10 years. We live in the same house I bought in 2004. So we have categories where we basically have very loose spending. But at the same time, we realize that the house we live in, it's not as important to us. Cars we drive, not as important to us. That's how it kind of evolved over time. But I would argue that the first 15 years of our marriage, or maybe 10 or 15 years of our marriage, us kind of having a budget kind of created this muscle that we are very responsible with our money. 
Something that while you're talking the whole time, I couldn't help but think about because you wrote about this in your book is kind of thinking of your expenses in terms of time. And it was interesting, like this whole podcast, I don't think you once you've used a dollar figure, you were like, that's going to cost 400 hours or that's going to cost you 5,000 hours of work. When did that kind of whole mental shift happen? As you get older, Cody, (laughs) (laughs) Justin, as you get older, you realize this is not forever. And you realize that you only have so many weeks left on this earth. Like at some point in time, I went through the list of things I did. I I do, like, I mean, at work. And I realized these are the things where I had the most value. And this is the things that are only I can do. And then the other things could be done by somebody else. I like doing these things. I have the most value. These things, I don't care about doing this. And anybody else can do this. And the other bucket, I give it to somebody else to do. And now I spend most of my day doing things I love. And this is how I receive the most satisfaction. I'm doing things that are meaningful to me and things I enjoy, okay? I still work long hours, but it's so much easier to work when you do things you love. Think about this. To schedule this podcast, there was probably emails going back and forth between my assistant and your team, all right? So every email takes maybe a few minutes. So let's say it took 20 minutes to schedule this podcast. It took another 10 minutes to schedule another appointment I have. During the week, it adds up to three or four hours, right? I could have spent my time doing this. And over a year, that's a lot of hours. Or I could have been doing this on writing. Or I could have been doing, even more importantly, spending time with my kids. I look at my kids and I realize, especially the ones that still live at home, I realize I only have limited time left with them. My 20-year-old son now is out of the house, so I see him a few times a week. We talk on the phone all the time, but I still see him only maybe a few times a week. Where my daughters still at home, and that's a very finite time I have with them. So I can spend this time on scheduling phone calls, appointments, or I can spend this time with my daughters playing chess or whatever. I value my time tremendously. And that kind of makes me think about the new book, The, the Soul in the Game, and thinking about like leading a meaningful life. It obviously seems like something very important to you and something you're passionate about. How did you decide like you wanted to kind of tackle a subject matter like that with somebody who is maybe known more for just like a financial background and having that financial pedigree? What made you want to take and write a book about such a subject matter? I started writing in 2004. And by the way, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm <laughs> going to take a small, I, small detour. Writing is probably one of the most important things that has happened to me in my life, like as an individual. It's in the same level as having kids because I write about two hours a day, every single day. Like I wake up in the morning and I write. Basically, writing forces you to have a focus thinking about a subject. And when I started writing, in the beginning, I only wrote about investing because that's my day job, that's my education, et cetera. So I kind of had the right to write about that. And so I have a newsletter and it's absolutely free and I have a very large subscriber base. When I would write an article for Financial Times or Barron's, people would subscribe so they don't have to go to Barron's to read it. They can get the article emailed to them. And little by little, I started to add some personal notes about my kids, you know, observations I made about my kids, or our trip to Santa Fe, or whatever. And I also love classical music. So I started to add musical notes at the bottom of the article. And over time, the non-investing section kind of grew in size. Nice thing about having a reader's email list, you get feedback. And then people say, Vitaly, I came to you for your investment articles but I'm actually staying for your life stories. 
as a writer, hearing that is very important because that gives you confidence. Because writing about investing is easy because I have a degree to do this. Writing about life, I didn't go to life university. I'm just another guy. That gave me confidence to write more and more about life. And over the years, I had a basically a lot of articles written on the subject. My readers would reach out to me and say, you know, you should really put them into a book. And that's how idea was born originally for my readers. This is kind of taking a left turn, but I kind of want to talk about going back to the very beginning here where, you know, you came to America and there's just like an unlimited supply of Coke and Pepsi. And you talked about how, you know, if you're chugging seven Cokes a day, it's not that enjoyable after, you know, a couple of weeks of that. How do you yeah. like on a tactical level build scarcity into life just so that you can enjoy things more? Because like, you know, you could go out to eat every night of the week at a restaurant, but then after a while, you're gonna be like, you know, I'm sick of eating at restaurants. Like this isn't special anymore. I'm hoping for our listeners out there who maybe they are going to Starbucks every day and it's not on their value list. Like how do you start to build some of that scarcity in your life so you actually enjoy more things and truly build a meaningful life for yourself? All right, so you brought it up because I have two stories. All right, all right, okay. Let me talk to you a little bit more about my diet. So I found that for me, when I'm in Denver, I basically don't eat bread. I don't eat steak, like red meat. And so I don't eat pasta. So I don't eat carbs, red meat, and I don't eat sugar, like no sugar at all. Because I look at my diet in Denver as basically all I'm trying to do is to put the best fuel I can into my body. And that's the diet that's appropriate for me. Lesson number one here, especially about sugar. One day I told myself, I don't need sugar. I don't need desserts. So when I say this, it's not like that sometimes I eat cookies or sometimes I eat cake. No. When I'm in Denver, I don't need it. So now it becomes what I call a half binary decision. It means it's not yes or no. It's just no. Here's important to understand. When you make a decision half binary, it consumes zero energy to make it. I'll give an example. I go to my mom, mother-in-law's house and they make shish kebab. And she offers me steak. And I don't eat red meat. And she says, God, this meat is so good. Just eat it today, just today. I said, you don't understand. If I eat it once, the next time I have to make a decision, that consumes willpower. I have very little willpower. That means I'm going to start doing it, eating all the time. By the way, we make them all the time. I have a friend who is an Orthodox rabbi. And he was at my house and he was telling Vitali, I eat too much bread. And I said, well, just become a person who doesn't eat bread. He's like, well, no, that's a very difficult thing to do. I said, well, do you eat pork? He said, no, I don't eat pork. If I offer you pork right now, how much energy is it going to consume? He's like, zero energy because I'm the person who doesn't eat pork. I'm like, just become a person who doesn't (laughs) eat bread. The true story, the guy lost 20 pounds or something like three months later. He became a person who doesn't eat this. Now, there's a second part to the story about scarcity. Now, and this is what I call my 8% diet, okay? So I figured out that I travel about a month out of a year. Like when I say travel, some went for business, a lot of it just for pleasure, whatever. So I spend about 8% of my time outside of Denver. When I'm outside of Denver, I have no diet. I eat as much pasta as I want, as much steak as I want. And I tell you, I enjoy that ice cream so much more when I travel. And you may, you may argue that because I started traveling more than in the past, and maybe there's some truth to that, but I don't have a 16% diet. Maybe it's 9 or 10. But the point is, because I kind of manufacture the scarcity, I actually enjoy 
eating, you know, steak and sweets and pasta, etc., and bread so much more when I travel. Another thing is important to realize when we do something more than once, we create a habit. And we should be mindful about this. Meaning that when you go to Starbucks for the second or third time, you should ask yourself, am I creating a new habit? And then you should ask yourself, do I want to have this habit? I'll give you an example. We have a cereal bar at my, at my office. So they have oatmeal and you have a lot of dried fruit. And we have dried strawberries. And I, re- and I caught myself that over two weeks, I went through a few pounds of dried strawberries, which has just violated the part of me not having sugar. I didn't even realize that dried strawberries have a lot of sugar. And then I realized that there was a time, like when I had it for the second or third time, I created a bad habit. And so I broke. I stopped doing this. And now when I have oatmeal, I just put some raisins. So whenever I do something, and I do it more than once, I kind of ask myself, am I creating a bad habit or good habit? That actually makes me think about when you talk about a half binary decision, you know, we talk a lot about with personal investors investing their own money, trying to take the emotion out of it. Like when the market is down, like not making a knee-jerk decision and just selling. I'm just curious, like maybe your thoughts on it, if it comes up at all, I don't know if it comes up at all in the book, but like how are some parallels there that maybe people could take into their investing journey to where some rules they can set up towards is like, hey, this is what we do, no matter what, there's no decision to be made. It's not like, well, yeah, but this time is different. This time the market's definitely crashing in six months. I need to get my money out. You know, like how to instill some of that half binary logic into your investing journey. Okay, this requires like another episode of, <laughs> this is a 30 minute conversation. This is in fact, my little book of sideways markets would be a perfect book for that actually. Number one, you can't time the market. You really can't. So to be a good investor in the long term, you have to be process-based, okay? So you really should focus not just the outcomes, of your decisions, because especially in the short run, because I can do the best research possible. I can find a dollar that's trading for 40 cents, and the market can still take the 40 cents to 30 cents. It was a rational thing about it. For a dollar to be trading at 40 cents, that's irrational. Why can't it get even more rational to get 30 cents or 20 cents, right? So this is why having a long-term time horizon is very important. That's number one. So don't let the market shrink your time horizon. Point number two, you have to be in a circle of competence. In other words, if I were to start analyzing biotechnology companies that have one drug, I would not be a rational investor. And the reason for that, because I never did good in biology and I would really have no idea what's going on, okay? Because it's so far outside of my core competence, okay? I found that I do the best when I analyze companies that have significant competitive advantage, whose products I understand, who have significant cash flows, who have good balance sheets, good management. So now I'm on my core competence, okay? So therefore, this is important. As an investor, you want to manage your EQ, which is your emotional intelligence, and your IQ, which is your intellectual quotient. So here's the thing. If you go very far away from your core competence, your EQ is going to be very low. Okay, and here's the thing. The lower your EQ, the lower your total IQ, because you can become a lot more irrational when your EQ is low. I would argue EQ is actually more important in investing than your IQ. You just need to have like average IQ and above average EQ. I just wrote this article where I talk about how in investing you have to be thoughtfully arrogant. 
What does it mean, thoughtfully arrogant? Well, when I buy a stock or sell a stock, that is an arrogant decision. Why is it arrogant? Because somebody's selling you the stock. When you go in the stock market, you want to buy shares of IBM, somebody is actually selling you the shares. So they have the reasons to sell. Some of those reasons have absolutely nothing to do with uh, IBM's business and have to be you know, driven by person's personal stuff. Okay, but a lot of it has to do with you know, what person thinks about the business. So when you buy an IBM, you're basically saying, I know more or I'm right and the person who is selling to me is wrong. That is arrogant. There is some arrogance to that. Now, you can have arrogant arrogance and you have thoughtful arrogance. Arrogant arrogant is because you're basically saying, because I am, because I had success in the past and because I'm buying it, it's going to work. Okay, so when you make a decision solely because of who you are and your past successes, most likely at some point you're going to pay a dear price for that. An example, Masayoshi San, who runs SoftBank, which is a huge company, they just took a $20 billion loss on the investments. And Masayoshi San himself admitted that he got completely infatuated with his previous successes. Now, what we practice is thoughtful arrogance. Okay, what is thoughtful arrogance? We do tremendous amount of research about on every company we buy. And that gives us an opinion that we think this company is worth a dollar and we're buying it to you for 50 cents. And now we have an amnesia about our successes or past failures. All we focus is at how much is this company is worth based on our research. And then the arrogance comes where we come in and say, we're going to buy it. And especially as a value investor, a lot of times you're buying things that everybody hates. And the arrogance comes is that you actually follow your research and go have your decision. And then after you bought the stock, this is just the beginning of the journey. Okay, because then you can have good news come out, bad news come out, and you have to make adjustments to, you're going to have new information. And sometimes you have to change your mind and you say, these were my assumptions. New information came in. I changed my assumptions. Now this company, which I thought was worth a dollar, is worth 60 cents. Good thing I bought it for 40 cents. Therefore, maybe it's not a good investment anymore, but I'm not going to lose money, please. You know, and, and so on. Or sometimes you are going to lose money. And again, that's part of investments. That's just you know, part of yeah. life. All part of the long game. Well, Vitaly, just in the yeah. interest of time, I think we'll wrap it up for today. And maybe we'll have to have you on for part two, because like you were talking about, I mean, you've just been taking these questions in stride. And we could have probably... 30-minute segments on each of these questions. For those in our audience, though, who want to keep up with you, I know you know you have two previous books on investing. Now you have your most recent book launched in June, Soul in the Game. Where are the best places for people to connect, get your books, all that good stuff? If you like to listen to podcasts, we have a podcast. It's a investor.fm or just look for Intellectual Investor. And it's basically just my articles read to you, like articles on tape. Okay, so that's number one. Invest- or if you want to subscribe to my newsletter, and again, it's absolutely free and just you get my articles, get classical music, my life stories, investments, contrarianedge.com, contrarianedge.com. Now, when you buy the book, go to soulinthegame.net. And actually, I wrote five new chapters after the book already went to print. And I'm going to keep writing more. You're going to get instructions how to get new chapters I've written. So that's, you know, soulinthegame.net. That's where you can get the information. And if you're interested in value investing, which I think you can just get a free chapter, a free primer on value investing on sixcommandments.com. 
Awesome. Well, thank you, Vitaly, for the time to come on and talk. And, and like Cody said, it sounds like one of those conversations where we could have took a lot of those questions and went and done entire episodes on. Love like just the different way that you have a, a thinking about things. And so I think that's why it makes a lot of sense that you wrote a book more around philosophy than just numbers and sense. So I appreciate your time with us today. Cody, Justin, it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share this with a friend, and also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million, available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.